I really am persuaded that God wants to bring a, a renewal movement. I think, I think we get to be part of something that's going to be so much more than ourselves. We're praying for revival. We're praying for the city of San Diego to come to its knees before Jesus. And so um, he's going to do that. I believe he's going to do that. We're going to spend the rest of the summer in the farewell discourses of the Gospel of John. These are the final words of Jesus before his crucifixion and resurrection, literally the night before he is giving to his disciples, his followers, as we like to say in our circle of churches, his apprentices, those who are practicing his way in the world. These are his final words of exhortation to them before his departure unto the Father, where Luke tells us that he ascended up into the clouds, and there he is awaiting the moment to return to earth, literally and physically to establish his reign. But in the interim, we, his people, now go and do the works that he did, and we speak the words that he spoke in the power of the Holy Spirit. And things take a very sharp turn this morning. Another deep breath into your belly, if you would, because this morning is... The kind of good news, bad news type thing from John chapter 15. So we left off before we went into our series, The Art of Abiding, in the first half of John chapter 15. It's some of the most popular and powerful verses in the Christian scripture. Using vine imagery, Jesus calls his disciples to abide or to remain, or that word could be literally translated to relax. In his love. And in relaxing in his love, in remaining in his love, in knowing that you are as loved as you could possibly be right now, from that place you'll bear fruit for the kingdom of God. The fruitfulness of a disciple is directly sourced in our vital union with Jesus himself through the Holy Spirit as we are made one with our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, in the first half of John chapter 15, made these ludicrous promises, big promises to us, that if we would remain in his love and let his word remain in us, that his scriptures and his teachings would be the foundation of the formation of our worldview and our souls, if we would do these things, we could ask the Father whatever we want, and our Father will give it to us. And then Jesus concluded the first half of John chapter 15 in verse 17 saying, this is my command, love each other. This is my command, love each other. So the first half of John 15, it's all warm and fuzzy, isn't it? <laughs> we read John 15 and we love this stuff about abiding and loving and bearing fruit. We really love to read that we can ask our Father whatever we want and he's going to give that to us. We love this stuff. These are the verses, the first half of John 15, that we memorize. We print these on our coffee cups so we can see them first thing in the morning. We linger over these verses in our journals, and that is actually all good and necessary responses to the amazing words of Jesus. But no one makes the back half of John 15 their life verses. <laughs> Nobody prints John 15 on a coffee cup saying, I cannot wait to get up and see this verse for the beginning of my day. Let me just read it again for effect. Verses 18 and 19 of John chapter 15. You can read along with me. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. 
As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. These are what we call the hard sayings of Jesus. And it is these more difficult, these more disorienting sayings of Jesus that actually create a radically committed community of followers. The comfortable verses that we print on our coffee cups are needed and necessary, but it's these jarring words of Jesus, when heard and received and obeyed, that create the countercultural community of the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to be. We need the comfort of the first verses. We need his love, and we need to abide and remain and be in his word. But we also need an implacable, that's a big word that means unchanging, a non-negotiable courage. Courage to live as followers of his will in this world because this world does not want God's will in any way. Jesus knew on this night here in the farewell discourses that he would be sending his friends to the wolves of the world. He knew what he was doing with his sheep. And so his warnings that we Christians would be misunderstood and marginalized and even martyred, that is, killed for our faith, they are as important today as they were for our first century family. So what we're going to do now is just take about 20 or 30 minutes, and we're going to unpack this a bit. We're going to meditate in these back verses, because meditation in the hard sayings of Jesus yields as much comfort as the prior verses when we really let them sink in, and they catalyze great courage. They renew our commitment. They strengthen our conviction to be apprenticing, practicing the way of Jesus in a world that does not want to practice his way. Let's start with this question. Let's start with this question. Why? Why? Why such strong language from Jesus? Why would the world hate us? Look at us. You're very nice people. Why would the world dislike you in any way, shape, or form? What is going on that Jesus would have to warn his people of such strong disfavor in their eyes? I mean, the language here is aggressive. Our word translated hated is translated broadly throughout the New Testament and the Greek literature of the day as to be held in disfavor, all the way to the very extreme, to dislike strongly with aversion and hostility. This word was sometimes used in idiomatic phrases of the day, referring to someone spitting at someone in their heart. We literally had a guy, week one last week, spit right on our doorstep and spit right back there. It was super weird. And he flipped me off as he was walking away. This word was also used in idiomatic phrases to make it even more heavy, to kill someone in your heart. And so Jesus is saying that the world is going to hold the Christian community, followers of Jesus, with such disfavor, with such strong dislike, that throughout our history and right up to today, folks, all around the globe, this abhorrence that the world has for Christians, it actually still turns deadly to this day. We have brothers and sisters spread throughout the globe today who are facing imminent death by declaring the gospel publicly, by living faithfully to Jesus, they are willing to literally lay down their lives for him 
because they've heeded the words of his warning, knowing that the world would hate them, but it does not dissuade them from actually declaring how good he is in forgiving and gracing and giving mercy and saving their souls. It's truly incredible. So at the root of this hatred between the world and the Christian community is really what I consider a clash of worldviews. It is a clash of ways in which we answer the big questions of life. Is there a God? Is there no God? What is morality? Is there such a thing as morality? Why do I exist? What is meaning? Those all form the questions of a worldview. And the kingdom of God answers those questions very specifically. And the world provides answers to those very specifically. And they are at odds with one another. The answers to those big questions are in contradiction one with another. Remember, John is a very sophisticated author and a very sophisticated theologian. He has a very robust theology. When he says, the world hates you, the world, that's a little tiny word packed with a lot of meaning in the Gospel of John. Here's my definition of the world from the Gospel of John. The world is the combined, it's a mouthful, so it should be up on the screen. The world is the combined beliefs, practices, traditions, values, and judgments These things that form our lives, the world creates them out of our fallenness, out of our separation from God, out of our sinfulness is the old word for that. And it is actually the world and human hearts separated from God, and this is why this is such a heavy message, is actually fueled, sourced. It's inspired by these malevolent beings, Satan being the head of that, these spiritual forces that are at war with God and at war with God's people. And so the world is this combination of how we answer the big questions of life, practices, traditions, values, behaviors. Our belief leads to behaviors, the judgments, all of these things. And so when John says the world hates you, it's all of that and more that comes against the Christian community. Don Carson simplifies this, New Testament scholar, saying the created moral order in active rebellion against God, that's the world. The world is the created moral order order in active rebellion against God. So, another deep breath into your belly. It's going to be heavy here for the first 20 minutes, I know. The Bible is unapologetic. It's, I think, what makes it such a unique document, such a unique piece of authority in our lives. It's unapologetic in how it describes the human condition. (laughs) The Bible doesn't play patty cake with our brokenness as souls separated from God. In our fallen, as it's traditionally been called, or deceived state where we're living out of lies, we actually actively, human beings actually actively oppose God's will. Paul, St. Paul, said in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that the mindset on the flesh, the mindset on this series of beliefs and judgments and moralities and behaviors fueled by Satan, the mindset on this broken, fallen, separated way of God, is actually, and he uses a very aggressive word, is hostile to God. And then he says, it cannot submit to him. The mindset on the flesh, set on this world and this world's ways, cannot submit to God. What sin does in us is it creates this entrenched rebellion against God's will in our hearts. Now, St. Augustine, in his confessions, He illustrates this perfectly. When Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of our history, when he was a very young man, a teenager, he and some friends broke into an orchard and they stole some pears. 
Many years afterward, in this book, Confessions, that Augustine wrote, he's reflecting on why he stole those pears. He's trying to figure out in his soul, why did I steal those pears? Because as he writes, he says, I, I wasn't poor, and I certainly wasn't hungry. And in fact, he even writes, I don't even like pears. Why did I break in and steal these pears? And Augustine's brilliant conclusion, and the Bible actually affirms this, is that he stole the pears simply because they were forbidden to him. The line is, thank you, Matt, the actual stealing was to be my treat, Augustine says. Augustine's bent soul wanted to disobey in rebellion. There was more pleasure in rebellion than there was in obedience to God's will in that moment because of sin and satanic influence. All of us as human beings, whether we break into the orchard and steal the pears or not, we all experience this in our lives due to our personal brokenness. For some, our rebellion is very subtle. Like there's this outward conformity to the standards of obedience that we think need to be met, but we're really like that little kid who's been told to sit down in, in the classroom, but then he goes and tells his mom, I was still standing in my heart though. There's something there, even in our outward obedience, that still within us is like, oh. If you're an Enneagram one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have this great conformity to the world outside of you, but on the inside, you're like, I just wish I could rebel just once, but you never will. That's rebellion in and of itself. For others, this rebellion, this breaking and this brokenness is just a full send into rebellion against God. That was me before I met Jesus. Anything I could do to do what was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I wanted that. That was the life I wanted to live, and I wanted to lead others into that place. When I was in junior high, here's, here's how sin works. It's so weird. When I was in junior high, my brother and I and a couple neighbor kids broke into our local junior high right down the street from us. And you would think that the breaking in was enough, but instead, and to this day, Troy denies it. I actually texted him to ask him. He thinks our neighbors did this, but one of us, Troy says it wasn't him, my brother, one of us took claw hammers to all of the whiteboards and all of the blackboards, and one of us, I don't know who it was, it definitely wasn't me, took condensed milk and ran up and down the hallways, dumping condensed milk up and down the hallways. Why? Why? Why would we do that? It's because... We have to recognize, no matter how it manifests, apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, we actively pursue destruction and deformity and breaking. All of these things are rooted in the entrenched rebellion against God that began, the Hebrew sages tell us in Genesis 3, with the fall of humanity. This hostility towards God, think about this, friends. This rebellion against God, this is what creates the brokenness in our world. It's this hostility that got against God that fuels oppression of other humans, theft, pride, wars, sexism, racism. All of this brokenness is rooted in this rebellion against God. And so that brings us now another deep breath to the good news of the gospel. Summarized in this way by St. Paul in Romans chapter 5 saying, while we were God's enemies, while we were hostile, while we were stealing pears and pouring condensed milk in the junior high, while we were sinning it up, rebelling with all of our heart, while we were God's sinners, Romans 5.10, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That, my friends, is very, very good news for you and I. In our hostility, heaven came after us. In our sinfulness, holiness pursued you out of mercy and love and grace. And you, the enemy of God, became an adopted family member 
of God's kingdom. Salvation is reconciliation. This is a facet of our salvation. It is reconciliation to the one that we were at war with. And so through God's grace and mercy and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now we Jesus followers, we are now living in a different worldview. We now answer the big questions of life about morality and God and existence and meaning. We answer them differently, namely centered in and through and by and for Jesus and his teachings and his authority. We are living according to a different script. And that script, friends, is in direct contradiction with a world that remains in hostility towards him. In our deepest desires now, by the grace of God, though we struggle, we actually want to obey God. It was one of the weirdest things for me, becoming a brand new believer 20 years ago, coming out of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, being introduced to the church, and all of a sudden, like, wanting to do something that what I would have normally done without any check in my heart. And all of a sudden, as a Christian, I was like, oh, oh. Oh, I feel guilt. What? I don't want to do that? What? Uh, it was amazing to have this awakening of new desires to actually want to obey God. We actually now want God to tell us what to do. And we want to do it, even though the Christian practice is a long struggle with the old flesh, what Paul calls the old man. We continue to battle with that sense of hostility and the patterns of beliefs that the world gave us and that our broken minds gave us. But in our deepest of deeps, we want Jesus to tell us what to do and we want to do it. And this new way of life in the Christian community, in the world, changes everything. This means that we no longer pursue what the world says is valuable. We no longer base our identity on what the world says our identity should be. We don't behave and act in the same way that the world does. We are categorically, culturally different. Jesus radically has transformed everything that we base our lives on. This means, friends, that you and I, we do not belong to the groups and the cliques of culture around us. We do not belong. We don't fit in. That's hard to hear, but you need to hear that more than ever. One of my greatest mistakes as an early youth pastor was like, I'm going to make Christianity cool. That was just ridiculous. No junior high kid thinks Christianity is cool when you actually listen to what Jesus was teaching. If you're a Christian this morning in this room, what that means is your degree program, the company you're pursuing, the career that you're going after, it's no longer first. It's not primary. It's important, but it's not primary. If you're a Christian in this room, your political party is not the answer to our social woes. The kingdom of God is. If you're a Christian in this room, yes, you have bloodline family that you are genetically connected to, but your new family is formed in the power of the Holy Spirit beyond bloodlines with the humans that are sitting next to you. We are literally, eternally bound one unto another, and your unbelieving brother, sister, mother, father, auntie, uncle are less your family now than the person sitting next to you, though they be a stranger, if they are filled with the Spirit. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is healing for the world. As a Christian, and in this day and age, we're just going to be talking about this with gentleness and respect as much as we can in our community. Our sexuality is not our identity. It's not. Even our race, friends, the sensitivity of our ethnic backgrounds and our cultural preferences, that is not our core identity. Is it part of it? Absolutely, but it is not the first foot forward. The Christian community is wholly unique, not right, not left, not socialist, not capitalist, not Republican, not Democrat, not black, white, Mexican, Asian, children of God adopted, 
enemies reconciled, made family. And so now, this love, this reconciliation, this is the foundation upon which we build our lives. What Jesus says about us, thinks of us, this is the foundation of our life. And what Jesus wants us to do is all that matters. Now, let me cap all that off by saying, the world hates that. The world hates that. As we Christians grow in obedience to Jesus, practicing his way with greater commitment and greater conviction and courage, what happens is we are breaking free from the illusion that we were ever in control. We're actually getting freed from the charade. We're actually living more truly human and not trying to keep up the control that we thought we had. And when humans begin to kind of part the curtain and the emperor has no clothes on the control things that we thought we had, as Christians begin to throw up their hands and say, I'm going to obey, I'm going to believe, I'm going to trust, that threatens the illusions of those who are still keeping the game going in the world. Their false foundations on which they stand are being exposed by our obedience. And so when people feel threatened and exposed, they become hostile. It's a very natural response. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger, he comments on this whole idea saying this, Hate is a very strong term that conveys the notion of rejection. It suggests that ultimately there is no middle ground. Either people embrace Jesus and his message and that of his followers, or they reject him and the good news of salvation. And so we, the Holy Spirit animated followers of Jesus, we now exist in the world to be like him and to do what he did. And there is no middle ground. That means for us, as we settle in here at Adams Elementary, and we prepare for the fall when people start coming back from traveling, and we look to celebrate our birthday, and we get into a new series, and we multiply groups, all the things we want to do as we're looking forward. For us as followers of Jesus, there is no kind of, I'm going to kind of follow Jesus. I'm going to kind of keep him here in my pocket, pull him out on Sunday mornings, especially when I need somebody to pray for me, and then put him back in my pocket and do whatever I want through the week. There is no kind of following Jesus. There's only following Jesus. Friends, a Christianity of convenience is no Christianity at all. And if Jesus is who he said he was, and if he is truly alive, which we as Christians believe, then indifference to his words and indifference to his kingship is no different than rebellion. So this is actually a very good checkpoint for us as Christians. If our Christianity is all comfortable, like if our Christianity is like the premier, I don't know, self-care, self-help philosophy, and everything is about finding perfect comfort in this world, are we actually heeding the words of the back half of John 15? Are we living them? Are we experiencing them? Are we doing and acting as Jesus did if our Christianity is all comfortable? John 15, 20, remember Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. Servants of Jesus, as Jesus offended the right and the left, the progressive and the conservative, as Jesus offended virtually every group of his day, servants of Jesus will also offend every group of our day. Jesus experienced hostility from the hands of the conservative Pharisees and the very, very liberal progressive left Sadducees. He was upsetting the political fervor of Rome and upsetting the underground of sinners who had no care about political discourse. In our day, folks, we need to recognize this and strike the balance as neighbor's church, as a family of churches. This is 
what this future church series is going to be about. But in our day, there are communities that will rally around Jesus' sexual ethics and say, this is it. This is the big fight right here. But they tend to take great offense and even get hostile when they're unconditionally called to welcome the immigrant and the stranger. When they're called to enemy love, to enemy love, they're deeply offended by this idea of lavish generosity for the well-being of the poor. There are others within the communities of the world and within the church who just rally around and love Jesus' social justice initiatives, care for the marginalized and the oppressed, but they become very, very hostile when the demands that Jesus made for submission to absolute submission to an authority outside of what feels good to me is presented to them. Care for the marginalized, care for the poor, yes, go, but do not tell me what to do unless it feels good for me and what I want. Followers of Jesus, we cannot fit in perfectly into any of the social groups of the world. The great missionary Leslie Newbegin said this, Christians ought not to be surprised if they are hated and rejected. Rather, they should be, check this out, this is so important. We should be alarmed when the world finds them very congenial, for the world loves its own. A church which is conformed to the world will not be recognizable as the company of the friends of Jesus. The sign of the cross will be the mark by which the true friends of Jesus will be recognized. And so we love and we obey Jesus and we call our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and even our enemies into this covenant relationship where we are marked by the cross. I'm not going to read it for you for the sake of time, but in verses 23 through 24, Jesus expands this idea of offense, and we are getting to the good news, I promise. In verses 23 through 24, Jesus highlights this, and he expands why the world becomes so hostile, and it's because, namely, he, when he came and spoke the words that he spoke and did the works that he did, he actually exposed the sin in even greater magnitude. Like in those verses, you can read them for yourselves, 23 through 24. Jesus basically says, if I hadn't said anything to you guys about the kingdom of God, then you wouldn't have any sin. If I hadn't done these works among you, then you wouldn't have any sin. Jesus did this in all of the gospels, actually. He was a prophet who was amplifying the hardness of heart of the humans that God was trying to reach. And so Jesus' presence amplified the sinfulness of those who heard and saw his works. And in some measure, as you and I continue in an obedient path, radically obedient path, it amplifies the rebellion of the world around us. When we don't jump in headlong on the Facebook posts with political fervor, but we remain silent in prayer, that's exposing. When we don't partake in the corruption, but we stand back from the diving deep into the debauchery of our day. When we choose to abide by Jesus' sexual ethic, when we choose not to lambast our enemy, but we speak kindly of image bearers who do great damage to us. All of these tiny little micro points of obedience are like candles in a dark place, and they are lighting it up. And John tells us that the world loves darkness above the light. Tim Keller exhorts the church saying this, if you're living a consistent life and you're not hiding who you are, you will get contempt, you will get flack, you will get insults, you will get mocked, you will get people who detest you, who disdain you, and show you contempt. This is important, and I want to turn the corner here. A passage like this can do one of two things to us that I don't want to happen in our bodies. 
It can elicit a fight or flight response. These are heavy words. We're living in an urban center where this hostility is so clear. We're living in a day and age where if you listen at all to the political discourse, there is legislation on the works that is very, very anti-church and anti-Christian. And so two responses can be elicited by these teachings. The first is the flight response. You feel the fear in your body, the anxiety ramping up. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? We need to head for the hills. We need to get out of here. There have been escapist Christian communities throughout our history. They have fled for the hills just trying to survive the chaos and the anarchy. Or worse yet, and this has been the problem in the West, and in the Western church in particular, and in particular in the United States, we get our fists out and we just start throwing punches in the name of Jesus. We are going to fight as hard as we possibly can, and here's a fist from Jesus right in your face. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of Jesus. Folks, we have to learn to live courageously in the midst of the world. You cannot flee. And we also are not to fight. We are praying to make our enemies our friends. Yes, we live in a democratic society. We should vote our convictions. Do whatever you want with your politics. But to be aggressive and to lambast and to be forgetful of the image-bearing reality that we have been sent to die for those that we are lambasting is to lose the power of Christianity in this world. So if Christianity and Christianity of a convenience is no Christianity at all, then I would say of equal measure, Christianity devoid of compassion and empathy misses the mark because we are not being persecuted and passed over because we're jerks. <laughs> this is such an important checkpoint for us. Unless we are heavy laden with compassion and willing to absorb the wrong and die for the world around us, then of course we're going to be passed over. Of course we're going to be ignored. Of course we're going to be marginalized. Who wants to be around the super opinionated person that doesn't have an open ear to anybody else's ideas? None of us do. But that's where we have messed up, church. That is where we, the church, have messed up. And we need to get on our knees and repent and say, Spirit, I want the voice of Jesus. I want compassion with my enemies. I want to be crucified for the one that hates me. I want them to pin me on the cross so that they see I love them. Like Jesus loved me, his enemy, and reconciled me. When maligned, we remain silent. When passed over for inclusion or promotion because of our crazy, archaic beliefs, we lean into the love and the provision of God, and we seek help and solace in our community together with other family members of Christianity. When mocked, we pray for those who are abiding. You see, the call of Christianity, it is indeed John 15, the first half. Abide, rest, relax in his love. But that love compels us to a courageous love as Jesus loved, dying for our oppressor and transforming our enemy into our family. Three points to finish. How do we do that? How do we do that? Number one, listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. There is loads happening in this passage and next week in John chapter 16, so much so that literally I'm just going to seed this moment with come next week. Point number one is going to be answered in full and in detail next week. How do we listen to the Holy Spirit in a secular age that denies Jesus and opposes Jesus? 
How do we testify and bear witness in a world that does not want to hear what we have to say at all? The advocate will come. And it starts with receiving and reveling in what he has done for you. And then all of a sudden, the overflow of your life is like, I cannot stop talking about this. And if you're passed over because you're annoying with the gospel, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Well, you know what I mean. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. I don't, I don't want to. Okay, let's move on. Number two. Number two. How do we do this? How do we actually live in this world? Guys, remember this is normal Christianity. Please. I love the self-care movement. I think it's super important. I love mindfulness and meditation, especially in Christian practice. I think what's going on in business rooms and boardrooms and, and apps right now is a, is a Western truncation of Eastern Buddhism and Eastern meditation practices. But we Christians have a long tradition of self-care and, and understanding the human mind and psyche in health. What we cannot forget is that all around the world, Christianity is not about self-care. It's about crucifixion. This is why Jesus said, pick up your cross. I know I mention these ladies all the time. There are women in Iran right now, right now. They're going out in full face covering to herald the gospel, and they know that they, if they are caught, they will be raped or killed. There are pastors in North Korean prisons right now with a, with a smidget of the book of Ephesians memorized, pastoring their flocks, and they will not stop. This is normal Christianity, normal Christianity. Jesus actually said, you will be like me. In verse 1 next week when we get to chapter 16, he literally says, I told you all of this so that when it gets rough, not if it gets rough, but when it gets rough, you don't bail. You don't tuck tail and turn corner and run as fast as you can. Make a decision right now in the hard sayings of Jesus. I want to be radically committed with compassion and love no matter what comes my way in career, in work, in social status, in marginalization. In legislation, I want to love like Jesus loved. This is what Peter said, who actually denied Jesus. He had a little moment of cowardice, denied him, and then was restored. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when glory is revealed. Number three, and this is the final piece. And Kim, you can come on up, and we'll prepare for worship and communion. Loved ones... One final deep breath into your bodies. Hold on to hope. Like real hope. Hope for the world. Hope for your soul. Hope for eternity. The things that we believe, when you believe them, radically change your perspective on everything that is happening around us. Hold on to hope. And if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. What there's this little line, which I just read for you guys in John 15, and the guys may get it up on the slides. There it is. This is where our hope is. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Verse 20 of John 15. Guys, God intends to heal the world through you and I and a steadfast, courageous church, radically obeying and doing what Jesus said, serving and dying for this world. And if we have come to obey his teaching, there are those this week that you have literally been sent to who may come to obey his teaching as well. And that is the hope of this world. And I want to encourage you. The one that you think is the most anti-Christian, furthest from the gospel possible, the one that just at work, just uh, that one, 
that one may be the next Billy Graham that you bring to Jesus. It may be the kid that has run off the rails returns because of your prayer and your gospel commitments and convictions. Those who turned the Roman Empire upside down in the first century, beginning with Paul, Paul was so opposed to Christians that he was murdering them, murdering them. And he became the greatest Christian evangelist and church planter our history has ever known. And he went to his death, praising Jesus. This morning in our time of communion, I would invite you to first start with hope. What hope have you been given in the cross of Jesus? You and I who were once enemies, we are now his family. And what we're about to remember in communion is that we are his family. But we have been placed in this generation for such a time as this. In the midst of global plague, almost over. Yep, yep, that's good. (laughs) In the midst of political chaos, probably never going to be over. In the midst of financial uncertainty, in the midst of severe oppression and injustice, in the midst of redefinitions of morality and sexuality abroad, for such a time as this, Jesus has placed you and I to be crucified for the world. What a noble calling. What a gracious calling. What a beautiful thing to commit your life to. And then when it's all said and done, even if like our first century brothers and sisters, you're crucified upside down, which I highly doubt any of us will be, you go to see the king in glory. If we believe that, we could change our city. We really could. Father, as we come to worship this morning and Matt leads us in a communion meditation, Kim leads us in worship, help us not to just be a Sunday morning event, but now as a community, as a family, We embrace you, Holy Spirit. We embrace your conviction. We also embrace your comfort. And the cup and the bread remind us that you absorbed into yourself the wrong, the evil of the world, our evil, our rebellion. You you took it into yourself so that we could be raised to new life. And so... Spirit, come and do your work and quicken and awaken us. Even today, may may there be a turning point in every soul, a moment of decision saying, this sermon, this Sunday, I want to re-radically commit. I don't want to be afraid. I want to walk in courage. I want to walk in love. For those of us this morning that have been fighting the world, just fighting with our fists, help us, Lord, to to be bruised like you were by the world, for the world. For those of us that have wanted to flee, return us to a place of steadfastness and certainty that we have been sent specifically by you. So as we sing and partake of the elements, meet with us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys all stand and we'll worship. You should have received the communion elements on your way in. If you didn't, there are probably some more out on the table out back.